I just want to thank you all for participating in the poll and uh, oh, helping yeah. me defeat Kelly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, did you see Mara's post? Because she shared the poll, and there was like this whole comment thread um, where like we were basically like telling Kelly why she's wrong. <laughs> yeah, I saw that actually. <laughs> and did you see my tag? Yeah, the like uh, OP is getting uh, dabbed yeah. on a space yeah. opera. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when when she when I saw she made that poll, my like, god damn it, Callie, you don't know what you're doing, do you? <laughs> you're so fucking out of touch. We were sitting up on the third floor, and I'm like, I just want y'all know that uh, Baby Yoda is uh, cuter than Baby Crew, and she's like, excuse me. <laughs> I voted in that poll, and I voted for Baby Yoda. Baby Yoda. Okay. She hasn't even seen Mandalorian yet. Though, I haven't seen she? it. No. But she she was uh she was like. <laughs> today i was like so are you are you finally ready to admit and she's like i refuse to admit she's like the only reason that yoda won was because of uh name id <laughs> <laughs> she's like more people know yoda than know which is actually probably true well i that's probably technically true but i don't think that that i would say i would say <laughs> amongst a younger crowd i bet Groot is probably more name recognizable than yoda mm. Maybe amongst, like, Zoomers. Yeah, that's what I mean by new people. I don't know. Even then, I feel like it'd be... It's tough, dude. It's tough to think about, like, you know, how like, they, they see things. They even saw, like, Force Awakens and, you know... Yeah, but, I mean, was Yoda in that? Barely. Barely! Yoda wasn't in The Force Awakens. Yeah, barely! Uh, he was in the he second in, one. He was uh, in the second uh, one. Last yeah. Jedi, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the sacred text! <laughs> <laughs> What's up, everyone? It's State of the Revolution, the Michigan Progressive Podcast. I'm Benjamin Klon. Zachary Reinhardt. And Alex Sahori. We're coming to you from the studios at The Fledge in Lansing, Michigan. As we tape this, it is Monday, November 25th, and thanks for joining us this week. Uh, we got a really cool show for you today. Um, later on in the program, we're going to be talking to Linda Sarsour. She is uh, an activist, an organizer, an author, um, and a Bernie Sanders surrogate. And uh, so we're really excited to get to have a conversation with her. Uh, but first, we are going to get into some news. Um, just last week, Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson uh, announced new rules that are going to make it easier for people to change their gender identity on their driver's licenses and state-issued IDs, uh, which is very, very exciting uh, for a lot of transgender people. Uh, because previously, uh, in order to in order to uh, correct the sex designation on your driver's license. You would need to provide a birth certificate, a passport, or a court order. Um, but now uh, you just need to fill out a form and pay like a $10 fee. Yeah, I think that uh, this is uh, one of those like, um, like, you know, some people might see it as like trivial, but it's like one of those things that's really important. And it's one of those small things that the marginalized communities have to go through. Um, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, I'd like to see, I mean, obviously, like the. Um, this is a really good uh, first step for uh, transgender people. Uh, I'd like to see a thing with uh, undocumented um, folks as well, because uh, uh, having access to a vehicle and uh, having uh, access to <laughs> your own identity are both very important things. 
Yeah, I I think wasn't she at least at one point or at least to some extent opposed to giving identification cards to undocumented people? Yeah, yeah. So uh, no change on that. No, no change on that. No, that's unfortunate. But well, yep. what I find like what I find like really uh, you know fascinating about this is that even though it quite literally does not affect anybody. But, like, the people who want to get their driver's license changed, you still get, like, you know, weird people online who, like, flip out about it for, like, no reason whatsoever. And, you know, I, I like, mention, I make this, like, you know, mention a lot, right? Like, uh, people do not have a very uh, consistent or coherent political views. And, like, the trans issue is actually a perfect example because you got, like, somebody I know you know, who defends Colin Kaepernick every chance he gets, but hates trans people and hates, and he hates the cops, but you know, yeah, exactly. Like, Wait, who are we talking about? Just like some random guy that I oh, okay. on Facebook. That's fucking weird. Yeah, no, but I mean, I'm, I'm, it's just like, you know, I like, I, I like you know, just kind of bringing that out here, there, you know, just like, uh, it really shouldn't, you know, just because these issues are really hard, um, right now, doesn't mean that they're always going to be that way in the future and we gotta like we 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 do we need to do better in messaging is kind of like what i'm saying not like you know just figure out what it is with these people that are just like what makes them so scared about this i really need to understand yeah i mean there's a lot of work to do there's (laughs) there's even like within um you know democratic circles there's a lot of transphobia and things like that that still exist uh let alone once you get into like republican circles so yeah, there's a lot of work to do, and I think that this having, um, you know, uh, things like this helps with awareness and just like, um, kind of like you know, like uh, obviously like with uh, the gay rights uh, movement, which is uh, a little different, um, obviously because it's you know gender versus um, sexual orientation. But the more that uh, people uh, are um, exposed and um, you know have friends and family uh, that are um, trans, uh, identifying, uh, I think the better that this situation will get. So you, uh, you guys want to talk about Larry Inman? Cause I really want to talk about Larry Inman. Yeah. Let's talk about it. Uh, for, for, so for those, uh, for those who aren't aware, uh, there is a state representative here in Michigan, uh, named Larry Inman, uh, who earlier this year was indicted on charges of bribery, extortion, and lying to the FBI. And uh, has since uh, since then has still refused to resign. Um, and so for the past few weeks, past several weeks, there's been a uh, campaign up in uh, his district, which is like Grand Traverse County, um, to recall him. Yeah. And you thought those charges were crazy, but it gets crazier because uh, he pulled a uh, Roseanne Barr and tried to use the Roseanne Barr defense and said uh, just a few days after being indicted on those charges that the reason that he um, made these uh, mistakes was because he uh, had an opioid addiction that he just, you know, oh, yeah. couldn't kick. So, I heard about um, this. Yeah, he that's tried to argue was, that... That's why he was trying to sell his vote. <laughs> <laughs> he was... Uh, so he tried to use that argument in court, and the judge was like, um, no. <laughs> so uh, that's been thrown out. And yeah, December December 3rd will be when he uh, has his first uh, hearing. Yeah, that's uh, coming up pretty shortly. But um, just uh, last Friday, 
the campaign to recall Larry Inman uh, submitted, looks like, approximately 14,000 signatures to the Michigan Bureau of Elections, uh, which they still have to review and check for, you know, check and make sure that they're valid. Uh, but the the rules stated that they needed at least 12,201 valid signatures, which, how the fuck do they even come up with that stupid fucking number? I don't know. Um, so they, they actually changed, this was changed during the lame duck. Oh, um, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So it used to be 90 day collection period. They changed it to 60 day. And uh, you need um, one quarter of the number of votes cast in the last presidential election. The last presidential election. Or no, last election. election. Last election. Last non, or last even year election. So in this situation, it was the gubernatorial, which we had record-breaking turnout. So the number of signatures needed for this was like, to put it in perspective, you need... um, you need 12,000, which, uh, like I said, was 25% of the votes cast uh, in the district. Um, to have a law put in place or overturned, you only need 4%. So, I mean, like, the difference between having a law and having your representative uh, replaced is vastly different. And uh, in large part, that's because the governor um, who helped change those laws was uh, also um, had an attempted recall against him. So. That's true. It's almost uh, uh, it's almost like uh, Republicans have a problem with uh, their voters trying to recall them or something. <laughs> you know, you really do love to see it. You know that there are that there is a Democratic energy to remove uh, people from office from public office, and we really need to like continue to ride on that energy. There are lots of people throughout our government, state and federal, that need to like be removed. Um, I'm thinking of a lot of judges well, that Trump I mean, just uh, nominated to the judiciary. Mm-hmm. You know, we could impeach those motherfuckers. We should be impeaching a whole lot more people nowadays. Your uh, your host, Benjamin Klein, and I actually uh, went up to uh, gather signatures for the recall effort. And, we uh, did. You know, you would think that having a state rep who has been indicted on three different charges, admitted to an opioid addiction, and has this weird, psycho, absolutely psycho weird obsession with Amelia oh, Earhart. Yes, I remember Amelia. Amelia. Uh, to the point where, like, his fundraising dinners will have uh, an empty chair um, designated Amelia, yeah. for. Amelia Hart. So you think with all of that, with all of those things working against this man, you think like getting signatures from people would be, <laughs> I mean, you, you would think that we'd have to beg them not to sign it. Um, not the case, not the case, folks. It I, was, uh, uh, it was, it was a lot more difficult than I would have hoped it would have I, been. It, it definitely was. Cause like when I was, I was sort of on the fence about whether or not I wanted to go. Uh, Kelly, uh, uh, it convinced me. She told you. Sort of, yeah. Um, but, like, when I had agreed to go, it was before, like, the snow and winter weather hit Lansing. So I wasn't even thinking about <laughs> what the weather was going to be like when we got up there. Oh, was it bad? Oh, yeah, we got there. Uh, it was, like, uh, two days after one of, like, a huge blizzard. A huge blizzard, yeah. So, like, Zach and I go into the office. We file our paperwork and stuff uh, with the campaign. And we get our assignments, our clipboards. We go out to the car. 
Uh, we get into the car uh, to go to, you know, the places that we need to go to collect, collect signatures. And we just sit there for a minute. And I turn to Zach and I say, we've made a huge mistake. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, on the bright side, not as huge of a mistake as Larry Inman. That's true. That's true. Um, I'm, glad that, I'm glad that we were able to be a part of the effort to uh, to get him out of office. And I hope that it goes through. I, I, just, I just imagine Larry, like like laying like on the floor in his office just like strung out on smack and he turns over he's like man we really did it this time amelia (laughs) (laughs) how much you want to bet that he has like um like a secret room in his house where he goes where he's got like a like a like a pretend like cockpit set up (laughs) (laughs) like he goes in there like you know when he's upset and he sits down in the chair and he pretends that he's uh he's piloting an airplane with him yeah no like I, I can I can foresee that you know a, you guys a, know a that giant th- glass of Chardonnay, uh, a couple oxycotton, and uh, some fun time with Amelia. Right. <laughs> we're going on an adventure. Oh no, we're going down, Amelia. We're going down. <laughs> you guys know that there's actually been some Amelia Earhart news recently, right? Well, you're shitting me. I'm not fucking with you. Apparently, there was like some uh, remains that were sent to like the Amelia Earhart Institute. Oh, maybe that's what actually uh, caused the. Uh, you know, opioid addiction was the loss of his yeah. one true love. Yeah, I mean, because, like, the thing about Amelia Earhart is that, like, it's a story that kind of, like, doesn't, like, have any definitive, like, conclusion. You know, Yeah, There's it's no like, um, uh, what's the guy? The, uh, Jimmy Hoffa, right? It's kind of yeah. like, it's like a Jimmy Hoffa kind of situation where there's no... But it's like, it, but it's also one of those stories that's, like, uh, time has kind of, you know, uh, provided, um, you know some some idea of what's happened uh-huh you know uh she's dead well i mean she spoiler alert she she was born literally <laughs> over 100 years ago so it's <laughs> it's safe to say i think that uh she's she's no longer with us yeah don't tell don't tell larry, don't tell larry <laughs> yeah from october 15th this is uh cnn researchers hope dna testing may finally prove whether bones found on remote island were amelia Earhart's. uh i think these are probably the same bones that are like have you guys like ever seen like that photo of like oh this is amelia Earhart in this like uh remote island have you guys ever seen those photos or you guys ever like there? There's this like photograph that a lot of people claim. Oh, this is Amelia Earhart. She she like died on this remote island. A lot of people believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess they uh, took the bones from there finally or something like that, and now they're gonna do it. Maybe, maybe not. We'll see. Uh, I'm sure Larry will be very interested. That's probably why he's <laughs> holding on because he's like he needs to retain power. That way he can insert his um uh like candlelight vigil uh um resolution into the michigan legislature yeah well you know the republican caucus like kicked him out and he's been stripped of all his of all of his committees um so he basically can't really do anything um not that he really has been doing anything for like the last several months anyway no um but i hope that he can keep himself up to date on what's happening with amelia Earhart from his fucking jail cell. Yeah. And as somebody who worked uh for his opponent back in 2016, I'm bitter as fuck. Mm-hmm. I told all of you folks in Grand Traverse County to vote for Betsy and uh you guys voted for this guy. So I I'm not trying to blame the electorate, but uh I'm blaming the electorate. Electorate, come on. What are you doing? <laughs> 
All right. Well, uh, we are about to be joined by uh, Linda Sarsour. Uh, she's going to get on the phone with us here in a minute. So uh, stick around and we'll be right back with that interview. So uh, joining us now is uh, Linda Sarsour. She is uh, an activist, an organizer, an author, uh, Bernie Sanders campaign surrogate. Uh, she actually has a new memoir coming out next year, uh, which you can pre-order right now. It's called um, We Are Not Here to Be Bystanders. Uh, Linda, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So the first thing that we want to talk about here is, you know, usually on this podcast, um, the episode that directly precedes each Democratic debate, that's like the main focus of what we talk about. But that's not so much what we're doing today. But we are interested still in getting your thoughts on what happened last week in Atlanta. Uh, You know, my candidate, Bernie Sanders, was, as usual, consistent, full of integrity, uh, had the the type of urgency and answers that we needed, particularly on issues of climate justice. Um, And again, as a Palestinian-American, just watching a competitive presidential candidate invoking the humanity of the Palestinian people when no one asked him, um, it, it just shows me the type of president that Bernie Sanders will be. So I was very proud of my candidate. I think he has a consistent performance each and every time. Uh, and that's kind of what I walked away with. Um, and the other thing I'd say was I wish Julian Castro was on the stage. I really, uh, really loved him as a candidate. And I thought that there were many moments that he could have really contributed to the conversation that was happening. Yeah, I saw some of his uh, uh, live tweets that uh, he was doing, and uh, I was really proud of the fact that uh, he had mentioned some of the things that Pete Buttigieg um, was doing in South Carolina, because I thought that uh, Kamala was kind of given an opportunity to uh, bring that to light more, and, and she really didn't, and I think uh, Julian would have uh, uh, stepped up to the plate and and I mean, he's been he's been a stalwart in terms of uh, fighting for marginalized communities, um, sex workers, uh, immigrants, and, and and all of the above. So yeah, I was I was actually uh, sad to see him uh, not there as well. I will say it is kind of interesting uh, that you have uh, Julian Castro kind of uh, leaning towards uh, this lane in the Democratic Party. Do you think that has something to do with kind of how he sees the future of the Democratic Party? Do you believe that he believes that it's either going to be uh, Sanders or Warren that gets the nomination? I absolutely believe that he believes that it will be a Sanders or Warren administration. Julian represents uh, the, I believe, the, really the future of the Democratic Party, but more so the recent uh, future, um, which means that right now we're building the presence of the Democratic Party. And the issues that Julian continues to invoke, criminal justice reform, the, the sanctity of black life, uh, issues around trans rights, um, and invoking the trans community. He was one of the candidates who also talked about the Muslim ban, but also uh, was the first candidate on a stage to talk about the Uyghur Muslims who are being oppressed in China right now. Mm-hmm. She just somehow always finds important moments and times to highlight things that really none of the other candidates are talking about. And he knows that our movements are strong, which is why he talks about the issues that are really exciting and building momentum around the country. Uh, and, and, and again, having uh, a man of color a Latino in the race I know is really inspiring for issues of representation. And again, it's just really, really sad to see how 
corrupt our political system is in, in the ways in which it qualifies or disqualifies people from getting on the debate stage. You know, to have billionaires buy their way to the stage, but a man who's running an actual campaign talking about real issues that comes from marginalized communities doesn't get the same opportunity just shows us how unjust and unfair the system is. So speaking of uh, billionaires trying to buy their way into the race, uh, uh, I'm sure I mean, you've spent a good portion of your life uh, organizing against a lot of initiatives that uh, Bloomberg did. What's your opinion on him getting in the race? I mean, I'm a New Yorker, and I hope that my fellow Americans take the word of New Yorkers. Mike Bloomberg is definitely not the answer uh, for Trump or the White House. Uh, he actually has been personally my main opposition for many of the campaigns that I've worked on in New York, including to end stop and frisk and the unwarranted surveillance of Muslim American communities. He was the opposition, believe it or not, on a very non-controversial campaign that the Muslim community led under his tenure to incorporate Muslim holidays into the New York City public school calendar. We spent nine years uh, organizing under Mayor Bloomberg. We, we did everything that was necessary, collected all the petitions, the, the rallies, the wonderful organizing by immigrant women in our community. I mean, the, the press conferences, the media, the op-eds, uh, passing a unanimous resolution in the New York City Council. I mean, we had support from almost every union in New York City, religious groups, I mean, civil rights groups. But this one man embodied the entire opposition. And he actually told us, I don't care what you do. I don't care how many people you organize. You need to take a rest because I am not going to do this for you. I'm just letting you know. And we literally have to shut our campaign down and start working towards the 2013 mayoral election and made this a center issue alongside ending unwarranted surveillance of Muslims in order for us to get this uh, initiative passed under a new administration. And then Mayor de Blasio, when he came mayor, became mayor, he had to, unfortunately, I don't know if he regrets it or not, but he basically had already promised us on the record that if he became the mayor, he would incorporate Muslim holidays into the New York City public school calendar. And that's, in fact, what ended up happening. But anyway, Bloomberg has been in opposition to communities of color. He has defended stop and frisk for like two decades. He defended unwarranted surveillance of Muslim communities. I mean, the guy is absolutely outrageous. He, uh, again, has a kind of arrogance um, that is really, honestly, like, remarkable. Like, I can't even explain to you how cocky and arrogant and how out of touch he is with ordinary New Yorkers. And I know the same would be uh, for him to be out of touch with really all Americans. I mean, he's just on a, in a class all by himself. Well, I mean, to me, you know, from my, from my point of view, and I'm sure both Zach and Alex, him getting into the race at this point is just is just it's fucking stupid. I, don't, I just don't understand why he's choosing to do this. I'm I'm curious what you think is the reason for him to do this now. Honestly, I feel like it's going to help Bernie Sanders. I think so, too. I mean, listen, I'm, I'm actually one of one of the people that said, welcome Mayor Bloomberg to the race. I mean, <laughs> there is no other reason than him having his own vanity project. The only reasons he has is because he can. I mean, he could buy this whole election. I mean, if this guy is an actual multi-billionaire, it's, it's exactly who he is. And this whole thing about, I'm not going to accept the presidential salary, like I'm supposed to be impressed by that. But at the end of the day, I don't know what he brings to the race. I don't know what issue he can contribute to. I mean, for, for me, he's just another Biden. I mean, he's going to hurt people like Biden in this race. Bernie Sanders was not going to be courting Michael Bloomberg voters. Um, yeah, so I'm not really worried about it, but I, I just also know that it's a vanity project. 
Yeah, I don't foresee uh, any Bernie supporters uh, being like, man, you know, now that Bloomberg's in the race, that's that looks like more like my guy. I just don't, uh, I don't see that happening at all. I thought it was interesting. Yeah, no. You know, it's it's always interesting, and I feel like uh, it's how you can kind of tell, uh, you know. Uh, uh, a genuine apology from like uh you know fake apology is is the timing and the timing of uh bloomberg's apology like right before he announces for presidency is just like and, and like you said you know he he apologized for stop and frisk but there were so many other communities um especially the muslim community um that he uh harmed in his policies as well that you know had he no no apologies just not important enough apology not accepted <laughs> right even if he gave it i mean and I, I feel like that's the way that, I mean, he, he can go out there and apologize all he wants, but, um, you know, if, if he was, if, if, in my view, if he was really sorry, he would take some of the money that he's wasting on this campaign and put it towards uh, real causes that would actually go towards um, undoing some of the harm that he had done. And not, not only should he put his money on some of the issues in which he caused harm and to some of the communities in which he caused harm, too, which I think is part of the equation, but a man of such... Uh, influence, particularly financial influence, if you really want to defeat Trump, if you really want to help the American people, why don't you go put money on some Senate races around the country? Mm -hmm. Because it doesn't actually matter necessarily who ends up becoming the president of the United States of America if we don't have a majority in the Senate that is going to allow us to implement the type of legislation that some of these progressive administrations are proposing. So, for example, Bernie Sanders wants Medicare for all, wants to cancel student debt, and of course, you know I'm all into that. We're going to need three branches of government, or at least two branches of government for now. How about to state legislators? And state legislators. Well, state legislators as well. I mean, all, I mean, listen, all down the ballot. I think the Senate, you know, for federal legislation is really important. But of course, he could be supporting members of con people running for Congress around the country to hold their seats. There's a lot of seats, as you know, that are, you know, could go either way in 2020. And so, that's where he could be putting his money right now. To spend $100 million so far um, on some ads is absolutely just blows my mind that anybody has that kind of money to throw around in this way. And that, is, and that I hope that it proves to the American people that Michael Bloomberg don't give a damn about you. He just wants to see his face on television. Mm -hmm. And that's really what this is all about. It's a vanity project. Yeah, it's definitely a vanity project. He's not even uh, campaigning in the first four states, which just goes to show that this isn't really about him trying to uh, appeal to, uh, you know, the people or anything like that. It's about, I, I mean, I honestly think it's about stopping um the progressive candidates in the race trying to stop uh, a Warren or Bernie um, because they are getting the money needed to carry on past the first four states and go into Super Tuesday. Whereas, you know, more of the centrist candidates like Biden, uh, they're just not, they're not able to cut it. They're having to start up super PACs. Uh, and even then, that's really not uh, working out so well. So, yeah, I think this is just a, a last ditch attempt to try to stop progressivism from uh, winning the party. That over. logic is just, it's so funny to me. Like, we, the more <clears throat> centrist candidates we throw in, the more. More opposition we're going to have against the progressives when it's only making the progressives stronger. <laughs> yeah, especially when it's like terrible uh, centrist candidates too, like uh, like Deval Patrick, you know, going to Morehouse and only getting two folks to show up and have to cancel. Like clearly, there's no support behind your campaign. It's just uh, it's people in boardrooms telling them, uh, you know, you have a chance, you got it, you should go for it in a way to try to stop progressive ideals. And I think honestly, uh, to try to get more centrist ideas on the debate stage because as we continue to go on. Uh, more and more of those folks are going to start to disappear from the debate stage as well.
Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, kind of going back, uh, to something that you said uh, about uh, Bernie Sanders in the debate, you know, I thought his uh, Saudi Arabia uh, answer was the best uh, answer of the entire debate for any candidate, um, and especially because it included, uh, you know, recognizing Palestinian humanity. Um, you're a very well-known uh, Palestinian rights advocate in this country, uh, and you uh, are a Bernie Sanders surrogate. So, could you like maybe uh, just speak a little bit on uh, your collaboration with the senator and how it kind of his journey reaching up to this point of, you know, coming out and saying, hey, we should withhold uh, aid until Israel kind of acts right. I will say that the, uh, Bernie Sanders has had an evolution on this issue and has become a lot more bolder and courageous on invoking uh, the self-determination of the Palestinian people. I think Netanyahu makes it very much easier for folks to basically uh, come out and say, look, we're going to leverage aid. We're going to, you know, calling him a racist and, make, and kind of equivocating him, Netanyahu, with the Trump administration. I think people are now starting to see the state of Israel in a different light, um, and particularly watching the relationships between the Trump administration and the Netanyahu administration, which we hope is going to come, you know, the Netanyahu administration hopefully will come to a close very soon. But unfortunately, the person who is in the running to become the next prime minister is actually not that much better um, than Benjamin Netanyahu, maybe not as overtly um, anti-Palestinian uh, as Netanyahu, but he definitely uh, supports some of the same policies and some of the same stances. Bernie Sanders is head and shoulders above everyone in the field when it comes to foreign policy. And as a progressive, and it's one of the reasons why I get really, um, I don't know, I get, I would say a little annoyed with this whole, uh, you know, Bernie and Senator Warren are like the same. Of course, you know, Senator Warren is a great candidate. She has um, positions that, of course, I support. Um, I'm glad that she's in this race. Uh, a lot of my friends support uh, Elizabeth Warren. But when it comes to foreign policy, Elizabeth Warren doesn't have any. And Bernie Sanders, not only on the issue of Palestine, which no one should be surprised that Bernie Sanders is on the side of the oppressed, um, as we've seen him, for example, call what happened in Bolivia a coup. No one else has had the courage to say that. Um, you know, the ways in which Bernie Sanders has voted, uh, for example, when it came to the Iraq war, one of the few people in the Senate um, and one of, uh, one of one of very few people, excuse me, as a uh, elected official on the federal level who voted against the war in Iraq, he has voted against the Patriot Act twice. I mean, this is a, a man who has had a consistent track record of never supporting neoliberal policies or foreign policy that supports, you know, regime change and uh, supporting coups like we've seen from, from other candidates and previous candidates in the past. So for me, Bernie Sanders has the most progressive foreign policy, a foreign policy that we need so desperately right now to kind of help save our faith in the larger international community. I mean, our standing in the international community is not well. Uh, we need somebody that's going to help us to change our image. And I believe wholeheartedly that Bernie Sanders is that candidate. Yeah, and you know, I I could be mistaken about this, but as far as I know, I think Bernie was the only the only presidential candidate who has expressed solidarity with Lula da Silva in uh, in Brazil, right? You are absolutely correct. And Lula came out um, of prison, basically saying that he wishes that the American people had the wisdom to elect Bernie Sanders as the next president of the United States of America. So I always tell progressives and people who claim to be revolutionary, why wouldn't you be supporting a president that in fact has the 
has the love and support of revolutionaries around the world. Um, why not support a candidate who invokes the Palestinian people? This is a candidate who does not believe in wars, which is a, a pretty common kind of uh, uniting factor in amongst the many progressives that were pro-diplomacy, anti, an anti-war movement. And, and, you know, one of the important things that nobody says, and I think Bernie doesn't want to make too many distinctions right now because he doesn't want to um, attack Elizabeth Warren or seem to be like he's attacking Elizabeth because he does see a great uh, team kind of with delegates and just being together. I think there's a strategy there for them to kind of stay on the same side. But, for example, Bernie Sanders voted against two of Trump's military budgets. Senator Warren voted for them. And I, I will never forget during one of the um, Trump's um, uh, uh, State of the Union addresses where he was talking about, you know, we can't have a socialist country. And Senator Warren got up and clapped. And I'm just like, what is happening here? What's going on? Like, I'm confused. So I think Bernie Sanders, again, on foreign policy is our candidate. I really think he's our candidate on every policy. That's just my opinion. Um, mm -hmm. And I see him as someone who uh, is going to allow for our movements to thrive and really help us to build the kind of political power and will on the ground level to have someone in the White House at the highest level of government who's going to actually support the cause of the movements we come from. Yeah, and, you know, like kind of synthesizing, you know, kind of like the uh, foreign policy aspect with kind of uh – uh, domestic organizing. Um, you were the you were a uh, founding board member of the Women's March, um, and you and uh, Tamika Mallory were uh, forced out largely because of uh, you guys' support of uh, BDS. I've kind of seen that, you know, on some of these foreign issues like uh, Palestine, like um, Venezuela, like Bolivia, uh, the progressive opposition uses these uh, foreign policy uh, um, uh, you know, differences as a wedge. Do you see that as well? Just as a correction, I mean, Tamika Mallory and I were uh, uh, of the co-founders of the Women's March as well as the uh, first uh, uh, part of the first group of board members of the Women's March organization. And we served our two-year term, which was part of the kind of agreement, and our two-year term is up and we kind of left. I think the media narrative, um, in order to kind of scare people into standing up for the types of issues uh, that Tamika and I choose to stand up for, there was a narrative about how we got forced out of the Women's March, and, and, and that's something that the right wing has helped and why progressives have, have, have kind of not been able to really understand, um, you know, what's actually happening within the progressive movement. Uh, Tamika and I, as you know, alongside so many other women, particularly women of color, in the last uh, Women's March on 2019, we actually uh, put forth one of the boldest, most intersectional feminist policy agendas that this country has ever seen. And what was so remarkable about this policy agenda was that it was a feminist agenda led by 60 women from around the country, and it included things like end the war in Yemen. It included things like we as a protest movement will fight against any anti-boycott, divestment, sanction legislation, because that's what we would do as a protest movement to protect our rights to protest and engage in boycott, divestment, sanction. So to your point, we were actually forced out, um, uh, you know, of, of, of kind of the, the, 
the story of the Women's March, not the actual organization, uh, over and over for the last three years because people in high places were outraged to see a Palestinian woman, a black woman, a Mexican woman standing up and not being afraid to say we are supporters of the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement, supporters of Palestinian human rights. So we were consistently attacked um, at the Women's March, as you also saw. And we continue to be that. I have not changed. I am still unequivocal support of the BDS movement. I'm always going to be Palestinian because I was born this way. But I think we're actually starting to see across the movement much more bolder stances from progressives on an issue like Palestine, including every presidential candidate, I believe, except for Klobuchar, who has voted against anti-BDS legislation um, in Congress and people kind of being a little bit more tepid about how they talk about Israel now because of some of the work that so many pro-Palestinian activists have done over the last decade. So the Women's March was just an example uh, that people wanted to make, their, and particularly the right-wing and pro-Israel groups, they wanted to make an example out of the Women's March. I don't think they did a good job. I think that Tamika and I still maintain our positions and our work and our influence in politics. And in fact, I have been welcomed with open arms in the Bernie Sanders campaign since 2016. I act as a campaign surrogate. I go around the country to motivate and encourage people and have conversations about why Bernie and Bernie staff have defended me over and over again and my positions as someone who brings something to the table, uh, not just as a person who supports Palestine, but as a person who supports Medicare for All and comprehensive immigration reform and all types of rights that Bernie Sanders is fighting for. Uh, what's the what do you think is the next uh, step uh, for Palestinian rights activists, like uh, in terms of um, the messaging uh, wars, I suppose, like now that we've got a competitive presidential candidate saying let's withhold aid, what's the next demand that we should start making? I think, you know, we have to see things through. I think uh, leveraging aid has been a call from the pro-Palestinian movement for a long time. Obviously, the, the real call from the movement is to end all military aid to Israel. Um, which I don't think is necessarily realistic at this moment. But even hearing the leveraging of aid um, as a conversation, I think, shows the progress that the movement is making. I think we have to hold President Sanders to that when he becomes the president. This is what I want to tell people, uh, you know, as someone who believes that there will be a President Sanders um, uh, or a Bernie Sanders presidency, I want people to realize that we've made some mistakes in the past um, with other presidential candidates and other presidents. Like when the President Obama became the president, he was a constitutional lawyer. You know, he was the first black president. He really inspired the nation as a man who was going to bring change to our people. And that's not exactly what we got. And so the reason I believe is it's not all the fault of President Obama on his own or the fault of his administration, but we, our movement, some of our movements stayed strong, but overall, we kind of took a nap. And what happened was, is we were expecting him to do the right thing. So we did not create the type of mass mobilization and political will that required for him to stay accountable to the things that he promised the people, um, except for things like amongst the immigrant rights movement. So a lot of the undocumented young people really had to do such extreme types of organizing and civil disobedience to get him to uh, get an executive order for DACA. But other than those type of movements, really the movements that we were a part of were quite dormant until Black Lives Matter started kind of getting, um, you know, getting kind of more organized and getting into the streets more. So what I'm saying is with the President Sanders presidency, 
I'm going to be in the, if he gets into office and he's inaugurated one day, I'm going to be protesting the next day. Because I want progressives to understand that we got to maintain our movement and actually expand the current movements that we we have. And in order for President Sanders to be able to do anything that he promised us, we got to be out here in the street saying, Bernie, we remember, and we need you to hurry up and start acting, and you better act real fast, because here's what you promised us. And, and honestly, that's what Bernie wants from us. Yeah. Bernie wants us to be in the streets. He wants us to be organizing, and he's like, don't you sleep on me. Yeah. I'm just like anybody else, and I need to be held accountable, and that's the kind of president that I want. Yeah, it that's, makes definitely, case. That's, that's definitely what I see as, like, the main fundamental differentiation between Sanders and any other candidate, including Warren, is that he is building a campaign that is meant to go beyond just the election. Absolutely, and that's why I tell people all the time, like, I don't idol worship. Like, I don't—I I tell people all the time that, you know, I'm not any, exactly the, the person who gets inspired by old white dudes from Vermont. And the reason why I support Senator Sanders is, is, as you saw, he's a man that has great frustration and great anger at the injustice that continues to have happened, even in his lifetime. And so when he goes up there, he's not, in, he's not exactly Barack Obama. He doesn't exactly have that type of charisma. What he has is he channels the frustration of ordinary Americans. And what I believe about his campaign is that it's not a campaign. It's a movement. He's been able to prove that since the 2016 election, he's kept that movement growing until today. That's why Medicare for All, which, by the way, has been something that people have been talking about for decades. This is not a new thing. But Bernie Sanders' 2016 campaign allowed it to be such a mainstream part of the conversation that he continued to support even between years from 2016 till now. And now we have legislation in the Senate. We have legislation in the House. We have over 200, um, uh, close to 200 uh, members of Congress who co-sponsored a Medicare for, for all bill. So what I'm saying is I'm part of a movement here. And that's who I am. I'm a movement leader. I'm not interested in vanity projects. I'm not interested in what anyone believes that actually President Sanders— What does President Sanders get out of this? Let's just be clear. He's been on the front page of every magazine that you can think of. He's been on the front page of the paper. He's been on national television. He's wrote two books already. Like, he has a great family. Like, what, is, what does he really get at, out of this? And I say to people all the time, he's actually sacrificing for all of us because he has the best chance to bring true progress to the White House and really set our movement onto a path where we thrive as movements. Like, I know under a President Sanders administration that our movements are going to thrive, that we require and need them to thrive in order for us to implement things that might not take—that might take us 10 years. Like, we're not going to get everything that— Bernie promised us in the four or eight years that he'll have in the White House. So we're going to have to figure out which candidate is going to give us the long-term strategy, long-term plan, and the space to keep organizing. And I think that's Bernie Sanders. I agree 100%. Well, Linda, we know you got to get going soon. But before you do, uh, I want to know about your book you have coming out next year. Yeah, I wrote a book. Actually, Uncle Bernie Sanders is in my book. Um, I wrote a book. I wrote a book that is uh, called "We Are Not Here to Be Bystanders." I was si signed by Simon and Schuster, and really, this is a memoir slash activist manifesto. And it was really my what I believed I owed my family, my great great grandchildren. As you know, someone who has been smeared and vilified and slandered in all kinds of ways, I felt the need to have to write my own story and to define myself and the communities that I come from. So you'll, the, the book is really made up of stories and experiences of myself growing up as a daughter of Palestinian immigrants and kind of my journey 
into becoming uh, a movement leader here in the United States of America. And I think the book is going to resonate with all kinds of people, young people, immigrants, children of immigrants, women of color, moms who are trying to organize and just do make the world, the world a better place for their children. My book has a foreword written by legendary civil rights icon Harry Belafonte. This is probably the last thing that Harry Belafonte um, is going to write. And so I hope that people read his words, which is a letter to movement, uh, to the movement and a letter to movement leaders about how we need to kind of stay focused and stay grounded and, re and remember where we all came from and how we got here. So I'm really excited about my book. It hits the stands March 3rd, 2020, but people can pre-order now. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to checking it out. Where can people go to pre-order it? You can go to pre-order it anywhere except Amazon. I don't. I don't want you buying it from Amazon. Right. But you can get it from Indie, <laughs> Indiebound, Barnes and Nobles. I mean, Google Books. You can really go on any, uh, any anywhere. You can just go online. Just Google the name of the book. It'll come up on all different, you know, sites. But just don't order from Amazon, or at least. If you do, just know I told you not to. <laughs> That's good. Well, once again, the book is called uh, We Are Not Here to Be Bystanders. Linda, thank you so much for joining us. It actually, it actually is an so honor much. to get to talk to you. Yeah, thank you, Linda. I appreciate you both. We yeah. appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Linda. Yeah, take care. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, it looks like that's, that's going to do it for us this week. Um, thanks for listening to this week's episode. Make sure that you subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever else you get podcasts. Make sure to rate and review us because it'll help new people find our show. Um, make sure to follow us on Twitter at SOTRPod. You can like us on Facebook at State of the Revolution. You can also email us at SOTRPod at gmail.com. Send us your questions, comments, and threats. And um, if you are so inclined, you can subscribe to us on Patreon and get some bonus content there. Uh, you can do that at patreon.com slash Michigan Progressive. I'm Benjamin Klon. Zachary Reinhardt. And Alex Tahori. Thanks. We'll see you guys next week. Bye.